I'm Carrie Miller, and this week's Blast from the Past author interview is with the young author of one of summer's hottest books, Lila Motley. She's even made the Oprah Book Club. So while we anticipate that interview, let's listen back to my 2021 Talking Volumes conversation. Now, this was mid-pandemic, so we were virtual, with Reginald Dwayne Betts. He is an exceptional poet and memoirist who writes about how books opened the path out of prison and led the way to the Million Books Project. Here's Reginald Dwayne Betts. I'm Carrie Miller. Welcome to a special Talking Volume series. As we endure the pandemic together, we are still digital. I'm still missing the Fitzgerald Theater, but we have a terrific group of writers, and I'm glad you're with us. The ideals of justice, integrity, equity animate the work Reginald Dwayne Betts does as both a poet and a lawyer. I was eager to talk to Mr. Betts as the Derek Chauvin trial begins and our community embarks on what will be undoubtedly a traumatic spring. We'll confront truths about ourselves, our relationships as citizens, our reckoning with race and power and authority. And we'll have to be awake to what we see and what we learn. Reginald Dwayne Betts is the author of, among several books, Felon, Poems, and a memoir titled A Question of Freedom, A Memoir of Learning, Survival, and Coming of Age in Prison. Welcome. It's good to have you with us. Thanks for doing this. I uh, know it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um. I think some of us in this community where George Floyd was killed by Officer Derek Chauvin believe that we learned something about one another. We we believe that some of us already knew this. Some of us are learning it for the first time. And now the learning is over and we're happy it's over because it was difficult and I know you've thought a lot about learning. It's one of the words in your memoir subtitle. And I want you, if you will, to talk to us about staying in the learning, even when that is that is really hard, as I think we're going to realize anew in the next coming months. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because having been to prison for a crime that I committed, it forces me always to think about um, how uncomfortable learning is. And it it forces me to realize that my biggest problem with the system was how easy it felt like it was for the prosecutor and for the judge to just conclude who I was. Mm -hmm. As if their learning about me had an obvious end stop. And, and so, you know, when, when I think about the, the, the learning being a, a very long and arduous process, I recognize that, that that's important just because we don't want to come to a superficial understanding. I, I did a workshop the other day and I asked people to tell me what was the, the public memories that they have that they remember deeply and intently from their childhood. And uh, these students were younger than me, so they would say 9-11 or they would say the Boston Marathon um, bombing. Uh, One student said the D.C. sniper case, which I remembered. But I remember the Rodney King trial. Like, that is the incident from my childhood. And so imagine if I thought uh, the trial was going to be the end of the learning. Yeah. I I would be completely devastated. And, And I think, you know, going through that trial as a kid and watching the public's response to that trial and Amadou Diallo, mm-hmm. you know, Sean Bell and the names, they, they become a chant, but they become a chant that remind us that the learning isn't, isn't over and that the learning is always um, going to be far more complicated and difficult than a verdict. <laughs> you know, we, we already know verdicts, just uh, verdicts are not the voice of God making things. Okay. You know, verdicts are just, another group of uh, fallible human beings trying to get it right, maybe trying to get it right. I've been thinking about how the learning will, again, I think force us as a community and as a nation, there'll be national coverage of this trial. 
will be reminded of what happened, as we should be. But what happens when that kind of learning bumps up against a really closely held sense of identity about who we are in a community like this? And it will tell us some things again that are going to be very hard to accept. And, and I also think there's kind of a weariness to this. We went through this and it was hard for, you know, in the spring. And now, you know, the pandemic and we've turned to new things. And now we're going to be back into those most difficult experiences and reminders of who we are as a community and who we are as a nation. So I think about that friction that happens. What, what comes to mind? Yeah, but if, I, I, I don't know if these things ever tell us who we are. Really? You see, because like, I, I, yeah, I carjack somebody. And so there's another narrative that says who I am is the person that carjacks somebody. I think the, the real question is what do we believe is permissible to do to other people? Mm-hmm. So that's it, you know, because because we could draw lines about just what is not permissible. And once you draw a line and you say this thing is not permissible, then we can raggle over what happens when people cross that line. But I think the thing that we haven't done as a community is just made a decision. It is impermissible to choke somebody out because they're selling cigarettes. It is impermissible to choke somebody out because they are disobeying uh, a lawful order. You know, just just say, like, what is absolutely impermissible conduct by the police? What is absolutely impermissible conduct by the state? I think that we just aren't willing to say that. I mean, yeah, listen to Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor is talking about these issues in the 70s. And it's a reason why he's using humor to talk about it. I mean, literally, he's talking about a chokehold. He's like, you know, the police in L.A. got a chokehold. Yeah, they just choke you to death. You get the cops, they got their arms around you, they choke you. They say, nah, stop, Bill. He's dead. I killed another one. And it is a joke. But he doesn't think it's funny. But what he's trying to do is use the humor to make you see something that you have long ignored. And again, it's the same question today that it was when he was saying it and he's and he's um and he's comic skits, right? And he's um and he's live performances during his show. He was saying, What is it permissible? to do to another human being. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has very little to do with who we are, you know, because the things that we do to people aren't the sum total of who we are. It's, it's a part of it. It might be a huge part of it, but I, I think that, you know, see, I, I just think that we get off track when we keep trying to say that this person is this thing that's happened Understood. instead of saying, you know, but, like, but, this isn't, is us. but isn't the way we answer that question, what is permissible with all the caveats and all the rationalizations that come to that answer indicative of kind of who we are together in a community, how we answer that question of what's permissible. But I just think we haven't answered it. See, you know, like the, 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 the chokehold is off the books and has been off the books for a long time in New York and mm-hmm. they still, they still use it. You know, I, I think that it's, it's just like, if we say that it's per- impermissible, then when people do it, it's a cut and dry case. And we don't start to try to find rationalizations for the conduct. When we start trying to find rationalizations for the conduct, it just means that we're unwilling in some fundamental way, way right, to say that this is impermissible. And, and look, in 1985, it was a case, Garner v. Tennessee. I think it was Garner v. Tennessee. At the time, most police forces in the United States, right, it was on the books. If a suspect is fleeing, you could use deadly force to stop him. So Garner is some kid that had broken in somebody's house. He's running out the back door. He's climbing and scaling the fence. The cops shoot him in the back of the head. This is 1985. It is permissible under the law to shoot him in the back of the head for fleeing from the scene of a crime. It does not require him to pose a clear and present danger and threat to the community. The case makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court. I was five years old in 1985. So when I was five, that meant that it was legal for the police to shoot me when I was running in the back. It means that we had decided that that was permissible. And it had to go to the Supreme Court to make the determination that no, it wasn't permissible. And this wasn't permissible in every state. 
but it was permissible in a lot of states, enough so that the Supreme Court had to rule it unconstitutional. And so what I mean is that um, when you see something happening again and again and again, Mm -hmm. maybe it means that we haven't really, really decided as a community, as as a city, as a state, as a country to truly say that this is not permissible. It feels like we had these cases and we had these tragic deaths, these killings, always over something that you could let a person go for. Right. When I got That's arrested, right. the police had 30 guns on me, 30, and they didn't fire a single one of them. Nobody, nobody, nobody was uh, confused about what was going on. They thought I might be armed and dangerous. And I thought they might think I was armed and dangerous. And my hand shot right up in the air. And I went to prison. And I was afraid that I might get shot. But the odds were against me being shot. I got a friend who was with me that day. He had his arms up too. He didn't get shot. Years later... He was trying to have a conversation with a police officer. It was a little altercation that happened with an off-duty cop who didn't have a badge out. And it, and it looked like the, the, the officer was accosting a woman. So my friend tried to intervene and he grabbed the officer, not understanding that he was a police officer because he didn't identify himself and he was working security. So it just looked like a man accosting a woman. More police officers came and it became clear that this guy was a cop. And so... Um, and it was it was frantic, you know, and, and, and officers were like pulling out guns and yelling and um and they started yelling at my friend's niece. And he went to talk and the officer pulled out what looked like a gun. So my friend turned to run. The officer shot him in the back of the head with a stun gun. He fell. He um had, you know, bleeding in his in his, in his brain. And but he was fine. He ended up being fine. But the point was. This was a situation where nobody was going to jail for. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Officers believed it was permissible. Instead of just them walking away, instead of just them taking the L, instead of, instead of them sitting down on a curve and letting things calm down for 10 minutes and deciding what to do next, it felt like it was permissible to escalate something to get the conclusion and the outcome that you felt was just, even if you knew the conclusion and the outcome that you were chasing, was a citation at best. Right. You know, and I think that that's what I I, I want us to have is two conversations. One is about accountability, but the other one is about like, why do we think that this is permissible? I mean, imagine like he, Mr. Floyd shouldn't even been incarcerated, even if he had got picked up for whatever they said he did in the middle of a pandemic. Like a, a cop should be thinking, you know, I just don't think this is one that we should lay our head on. Let me give you the $20. You said he passed the fake $20 bill. Here's $20. Let's move on. I mean, I just think that we're afraid to truly ask ourselves, what should a society deem as permissible for authorities to do? And it only becomes frightening in the cases of no consequence, you know, because those cases when people should walk away and they don't lead to the tragedies. Do you think in some ways we're also asking very publicly who matters? Yeah, I think every time when you say what is, you know, I mean, think about it. When 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 there was no such thing as intimate partner rape. It just meant that it was permissible for a husband to do anything to his wife because she didn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when people were being held in bondage, it was permissible to do anything to them because they didn't matter at all. And so, you know, I feel like we, I guess I have become exhausted with the question of, like, did Floyd deserve X? You know, did Mr. Floyd deserve X? Did this group of prisoners deserve this sentence? Like, I want us to say, what are we willing to say that is permissible for us to do to other people. Because that's when you hold up the mirror to yourself. You know, you ask this officer, is it permissible for somebody to choke your nephew or your cousin 
until they're nearly exhausted and they expire. Is that permissible? And nobody is going to say that's permissible. They won't. And the thing is, the thing is, it's not when when I when I got arrested for carjacking, the officers did not believe it was necessary or permissible for them to shoot me, for them to strangle me, you know. And because I understood that, like I committed a crime, they knew how I would respond. But you got these petty crimes where it's a real question. Should you cost somebody over 25 cents? I mean, that's a legitimate question. That is not a cut and dry issue. And for a long time, I think um, that that gray area is where officers take advantage. You know, that gray area is where we haven't figured out as a society what we want to say. You know, let that one go. I mean, my first client, he was just walking through an open-air drug market. He wasn't bothering anybody. And cops accosted him searched him. They found like residue on him and he was threatened with five years in prison. And my question is not what did he deserve, but should it be okay for the police to do that? You know, he got arrested three days later when he got on a bond. He was asleep on a bench because he was homeless. He didn't have any drugs on him, so they let him go. You know, and so the question becomes, is should it be okay for them to harass him in that way when you when you know he's not going to jail for it unless you get lucky and find some drugs on him? I think that's I, I, I think that's the harder question to answer, you know. Do you think this question of who matters also drives a lot of the uh, soul searching we should do about our criminal justice system and how unjust so much of what we've been okay with has has been? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to admit how unjust what we think is. Oh, like we've been okay with a lot, and even now that mass incarceration word is 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 in popular rhetoric, rhetoric, I think it allows some of us, a lot of us, not to confront things that we were okay with in the past. And sometimes being okay is just passive, you know, assent. It's just you know not just talking acceptance. about it. Yeah. And I, I think that it's um. <clears throat> Yeah, I got a. I mean, I got a. I got friends who've done twenty, twenty-five years in prison for crimes in which nobody was hurt, and and you know the judge, the prosecutor, everybody involved never just said, "Is it okay for me to treat this person this way?" Like, not do they deserve to be punished? Not like is the punishment just? I, I mean, I went to prisons where um, where they had to advise me to be careful. Like, is it okay to send somebody into an environment where you have to give them advice about being careful so that they can stay safe? And we we don't ask that question. You know, I was um I was doing some research. I'm, I got this million book project, and I'm right. trying to see what We're the inside talk of about prison. That. Yeah, but and I can't wait to talk about it. But like, this is the crazy. I'm so I'm doing this research. I'm trying to see what the inside of this prison that I serve time in looks like, so I can send it to the architect that's doing some work on the project. And so I Google the prison. And the first thing that comes up is prisoner kills other prisoner. And I thought, I thought about two things. One, I have a client that's currently at that prison. So when um, President Biden and Vice President Harris were accepting the the, the presidency and the vice presidency, um, Biden had just finished his speech. Harris had just started talking and I got a phone call. And a phone call was from a 804 number, and I knew exactly who it was calling because that's the prison number. So I answer. Client is talking to me, and we're trying to talk about his parole case. And then he says, "Oh, shot, man, they stabbing him. Oh man, they stabbing him. Ain't nobody doing that, man. I gotta get out of here, man. They just stabbing him." And you can hear the chaos in the background. And I'm on the phone, and I'm listening to the first black woman, who's the vice president, talk about changing this country. And I'm listening to this man describe another man being stabbed in a housing unit that I once served time in. And I realize that what what I won't talk about and nobody will talk about when we're trying to argue for his release from prison is that it should not be okay for us to put a person in an environment with conditions that encourage that kind of violence. I saw that clip about the man being killed in the same prison where I did time at 
by his cell partner. And I remember my client calling me, describing somebody getting stabbed. And I remember when I was at that same prison and another person got murdered by their cell partner. We have conversations about mass incarceration now, but I still kind of just feel like when you say who matters, part of figuring out who matters is like really being honest about what we permit. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is like central to the question. Uh, we, we have a tremendous reckoning that needs to happen. And we often say the reckoning is on the part of those who've committed crimes. You know, you say, how do you do you feel remorse? Uh, have you been rehabilitated? And I think all those are important questions. <laughs> but another really important question is how should I feel about myself as a prosecutor, as a judge, as a citizen for like being alive during a time period where a system exists where people get stabbed with like rusty pieces of metal over over pennies where where like riots occur because the response to a pandemic is uh, and every some prisons have been great. They figured it out. I mean, they, prison can't be great as an oxymoron, but some prisons have been much better than others. Right. They figured out how to try to keep people safe during a pandemic. I have friends who are taking the who've taken the vaccine. Right. Uh, they, they they figured out how to how to maneuver, like how to keep people separated as much as possible and allow people to get space. Other prisons, because they weren't built to imagine treating people humanely. Are like yeah, you get forty minutes out of your cell every three or four days, and it is it is just brutal conditions, and nobody is saying do we have a right to treat people this way, and I think you if know, we ask that question, then we would do something different. I I listened as you said, you know the person who is before the judge for sentencing is asked, do you feel remorse for your crime? I think about the veneer of morality that we lay over the criminal justice system with, I think, again, the recognition on a lot from a lot of us that there is nothing, there is nothing ultimately very moral about the way criminal justice works in this country. And yet a lot of us don't know what to do about that. Should we give up on the idea that we are dispensing some kind of justice that's being guided by a moral compass no i don't think so i, mean, I think i Why? think people inside of because when i talked about homeboys you were preparing somebody for a parole case when you talk to somebody who's really hurt somebody and who cares about the hurt that they've caused i mean they are deeply remorseful and they spent a long time grappling with those questions um especially the the, the more violent cases you know like you kill somebody you maim somebody, you rob somebody. I mean, you think deeply about what it meant to cause that kind of pain. And so you do want to be driven by a moral compass. I think that where it's like absent and profoundly absent and profoundly lacking is one, you shouldn't get arrested for like a fake $20 bill. You know, that's like low hanging fruit. And, and we're, so when you say, when I think about it as being morally bankrupt, the parts of it that are obviously morally bankrupt is the way in which we have built the system that, that actually prosecutes all of this low-hanging fruit that shouldn't exist. Um, um, it's a professor at Yale, Issa Cola Houseman, wrote a book called Misdemeanor Land. And in a book, she's accounting for the fact that um, in these jails in New York, most of the people that cycle through the system in and out are cycling for misdemeanors and low-level offenses. And the question is, this shouldn't even be happening. And this is not mm. the prison population. This is the jail population. This is the idea that arrests have ratcheted up. Arrests for things like selling cigarettes. Arrests for things like allegedly having um, counterfeit money. And I think that that's where the, the, the that shows us being morally bankrupt. I don't think it shows us being morally bankrupt that attempting to and failing to account for serious violence. You know, I think that we have to. I mean, I think that you have to try to account for burglary. You have to try to account for car theft. But I think the moral bankrupt, the, 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 the fact that where I, I would question us as a society is, um, is one, how we just don't think thoughtfully or very much at all about the conditions of confinement. Mm-hmm. I mean, they haven't radically changed, you know, ever like that. Like, I mean, I was at that prison like 15 years ago. How is it still as dark and how is it more violent? Like, 
like how is it more dangerous at this place than it was when I was there? Is this is this like prison an inverse of progress? You know, like and so this is the the thing that I find devastating that we should ask questions about. But I don't want to like I don't want to act as if I mean, <laughs> No, I I think I, it's I very important saying... to be more No, Some I wasn't say saying that, Yes, I know. I wasn't saying that there isn't incidental morality. Um and I wasn't saying that the, the whole system is bankrupt. I was saying that I think we have this illusion that we're guided by some kind of moral. I mean, we Americans who I've never spent time in prison. I'm concerned about what happens in prisons, but, you know, to, to the level that I can yeah. be. And it gives me some measure of comfort, I guess, to think that there's some kind of moral principle that's guiding the way the criminal justice system works once people get into it. Maybe right. that's I mean, just that's, an I illusion. I agree. No, yeah. I hundred. But that's why I brought up the, the question of like the misdemeanor land getting into because you see, yeah, yeah you, you see, it's an illusion when you think about like what is happening is the prosecutors and ratchet it up, and so you see that it's an illusion when you really think about n- not my case. And not the rape and not the robbery. I mean, we still may say that the way that we deal with these cases is is hugely problematic. Mm-hmm. And we still have to say that the systems that exist, the overcrowding, the dangerousness, is a huge issue. But just on some fundamental level, who we allow to get into the system, that is a huge problem. And I think we, we allow it to happen maybe because we think it's morally principled. But if we really viewed it, I mean, I had a client once. <laughs> I had a client once, right? She She had a dog. And she was living in a slum and uh, and 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 DCF. She had two kids. Right. DCF was like, you can't live here because your door doesn't lock. And um, and so they gave her money to move to a new apartment. It's a snowstorm outside right now. And, uh, and she moved during a snowstorm and her car broke down. She had left her dog there. She was like, I'm going to come back later on the day to pick the dog up because I had all this stuff or whatever. The dog dies. There's a snowstorm. Her car broke down. She couldn't get back to the house for the dog. They prosecuted her. For cruelty to animals, and I remember, <laughs> I remember, I mean, they, in Connecticut they got this weird thing where, like, when you're a defense attorney, you um you negotiate like the deals and the outcomes of cases, uh-huh. and you in a room with other defense attorneys and other prosecutors. So I'm in this room and I'm hearing the cases being negotiated, and there's one person, this woman, that stole like seventy thousand dollars from somebody she worked for, and the, and the judge was like, uh, "Well, I give her seven years suspended," and the defense attorney took it, and the prosecutor said, "Well, we want restitution," and the judge said, "She doesn't have any money." I'm not going to make her pay money that she doesn't have back. That's just going to hang it over her head and, and get her locked back up again. If you want money, take it to civil court. Prosecutors are mad, but I was like, that's that's legit. You know, yeah. she doesn't have money. I was like, this judge seems righteous. Other case, though, was a case. Some some guy touched some some little boy in a swimming pool. And I was like, oh. I was like, I don't know if that's okay. And he got like a program, and I was like, oh, that's rough. I don't know what I think about that, but okay, it means that the judge is trying to find a way to deal with these things outside of incarceration. I'm feeling good. I'm like, my client accidentally killed a dog. It is no way, you know, straight. Another case settled without prison. Come to my case, and the prosecutor says I'm gonna offer five years suspended after three. So she's gonna go to prison. I'm doing a math in my head. Um, I think they said suspended after like three and a half because if you do 18 months, you could do it at the jail, right? So I'm doing a math in my head and I'm like, that can't be right. Just 18. No, this is crazy. And I'm like, this is absurd. And the judge was like, yeah, I think that's too much. Five years suspended after um, five years suspended, five years suspended for. Mm-hmm. So he offered a year. And I thought, no, this is my client is not going to accept a year in jail for accidentally killing a dog. She has two children. And diapers? What what is this about? This is this is has to be absurd. This woman had to go through this process for like eighteen months before it got resolved, and 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 and, she, and it was hard. I mean, I would just watch her having to bring her children to court. I look, man. I love animals. I love dogs. I don't love all animals, but I love dogs, right? I don't think it's bad that the dog died, but really, this this it wasn't on purpose. And and was a year and like how can you? That's when I think it's morally bankrupt. That that these men sat in this courtroom and talked as if a year in jail was an adequate or appropriate punishment for a woman with two young children who accidentally killed a dog. I think that that's was morally bankrupt, and it's a way in which 
our system is so complex and so and 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 so hidden from the view of the public that it's like hard to understand the absurdity of some of these decisions. Just like you know, you face for a fake twenty dollar bill, you facing five years in jail. It's it's like even hard to be confronted with the absurdity of the decision. And that's why I think I don't know. I try to point out misdemeanor land because I try to say where we see where we fail is when we look closely. And what happens to people who don't end up in jail, who don't end up in prison, but still end up with misdemeanor convictions because they had to take a plea, still end up end up with felony convictions because they had to take a plea. I mean, these are cases where people don't believe that folks should be in prison, and yet they still believe that they should have this this anchor attached right. to their lives and have to go through that process. I think what you just said about it's hidden from view, from public view some of that seems to be changing, right? Some of these movements in, I think, like the city of Chicago and others to stop demanding ridiculous bails. And and if people can't make the bail, they spend, oh my God, months and years in jail awaiting their case to be tackled. What are some of the other ways to bring this more into public view? Yeah, I, well, I guess I'm a writer. <laughs> so I think the main way to bring it into public view is to find ways to really tell the stories about what's going on. I do think, um, yeah, I mean, I think about, I guess take it back. I mean, I think about the about Roots and what Roots did for, for the country's understanding of the antebellum period. The television you know, show. Yeah. The television show, right. I think about how that really brought things to people's mind that they just didn't fully understand at all right and, and i just think it hasn't been or or, or take um the jungle upton sinclair mm-hmm. you know that really says something about the meat packing industry and how profoundly um unjust so much of what was going on there was um grapes of wrath like we don't have that that really talks about the the, the fundamental ways that prison touches people and and destroys them and uh and i think that that's probably what we need you know we have some things you know we have like Shawshank Redemption but that's not about the system you know that's about a prison and how dangerous prisons are you know we have American me blood in blood out but these things and those are important too but they don't do this other thing that we need right now I mean you think about a book like um like a lesson before dying which is the first book I read cover to cover it's a beautiful book but but notice it's written in the 80s right comes out you got this kid who's a juvenile who was um, convicted of capital murder. Now he's innocent, but he's convicted of capital murder and he gets the death penalty as a juvenile. The whole book is premised on him not going to the electric chair as a pig because that's what the prosecutor says during a trial. This is not a boy. This is a pig. That's what the prosecutor says. What's amazing is that the book is a real reflection of his time period. So when you read it, you have to understand that it was a time period where a prosecutor would call a child a pig to justify killing him. And and that was, you know, like nobody reviewed that book and said, oh, I don't think this matches with how we treat people in the justice system. Nobody said this book is not good because it is it's fundamentally false. It's based on a premise that we would execute somebody who's innocent. <laughs> you know, people read the book. and was like, yeah, we do that sometimes. Now you fast forward 2020 and in 2005, the Supreme Court said that it's unconstitutional to execute somebody for a crime committed as a juvenile. Mm-hmm. So already this kid couldn't get executed in 2020, even if he had been guilty. Right. So the book has to be premised in a different way. You look at the innocence projects that have popped up in every state in this country. So already, if you're writing this book, when you do research, you're like, wait a minute. Oh, now, nah, maybe I should be talking about this. Maybe I should talk to these lawyers. You have all of these innocence projects. How does this work? You have governors pardoning people who are innocent on the back end. How does this work? And you have a, a whole movement that's fighting the death penalty that's far more robust now than it was when that book was written. What I'm trying to say is that book was trying to tackle the times of it, uh, the, the, the moment that it was written in. Where is the book that's tackling this moment? That will be a narrative that is just as powerful that is looking at money bail. You know, looking at it's a case that the civil rights court worked on and I turned it into a poem. And one of the lines was uh, he owed a thousand dollars for a traffic ticket. And that's what they locked him up for. And, 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 And the thing that was like brutal when I read it was he lost his job while sitting in jail. So he only owed a thousand dollars. He was taking care of um, his children and he had to sit in jail because he couldn't pay the thousand dollar fine. 
and then he loses his job while sitting in jail. If that is not the most inefficient of outcomes, then I just must be crazy, you know, <laughs> and we need and that. I mean, then if you animate it, that is like Shakespearean tragedy. You know, it's like an absurdity. Right. It's like uh, it was in, in one of the cases the woman has um, when the lawyers go see her. She has written on the back of a piece of paper. She's trying to keep track of how long she has to work to pay off her debt because they say she could pay off her debt um, $50 per day. And like each day that she's locked up, it, it takes $25 off her debt or something like that. And so she has these tick marks on the back of a piece of paper because she's trying to do the math to figure out how many days she will have to work to get back to her children. I mean, this has to be like Shakespearean drama, um, but it's not. You know, and, and I think that's one of the things. And I, this is about probably like a simple solution. If somebody would say, you need a policy answer. You need to point to a governor doing this or doing that. But I think that um, art, I think that art has always been really important in making a mass of people understand a problem in a way that, that, that cuts through some of the ways in which we set ourselves up as ideologues. And so I, I really fundamentally believe that we need we need this problem animated by art in, in a more public and profound and moving way. What do you think the poetry of Etheridge Knight in its time, right? He was writing in the 60s, is that right? Yeah, yeah. What do you think it was saying? In the 60s about- and the 70s. I'm a, you know what? I was going to read one poem, but now I'm going to read a different one. Okay. And, and I'm going to read it because I could tell a story about it. And so I'll read it first, and then I'll tell a story. Okay. And I should say for the audience, it's a hard poem, and, um, and it talks about sexual violence. For Freckle Face Gerald, I'm just going to read the last four stanzas. Take Gerald. 16 years hadn't even done a good job on his voice. He didn't even know how to talk tough. Or how to hide the glow of life before he was thrown in his pig meat for the buzzers to eat. Gerald, who had no memory or hope of copper hot lips or firm upthrusting thighs to reinforce his flow, let tall walls and buzzers change the course of his river from south to north. No safety in numbers like back on the block. Twos are plenty. Three definitely not. Four, you're all Muslims. Five, you were planning a race riot. Plus, Gerald can never quite win with his precise speech and innocent grin, the trust and fists of the young black cats. Gerald, sun-kissed 10,000 times on the nose and cheeks, didn't stand a chance, didn't even know that the loss of his balls had been plotted years in advance by wiser and bigger buzzards than those who now hover above his track and at night light upon his back. So, I'm 16, 17. I'm in solitary confinement and uh, somebody slides this book. I've told this story a hundred times and I'll tell it a thousand more. Somebody slides the black poets under my cell door. And um, I'm reading a book. And I stop on this cat named Etheridge just because I'm like, I don't know nobody named Etheridge. Let me see what he's talking about. <laughs> and uh, he like has 47 pictures taped on my cell wall. I'm reading his work. I read this poem for Feckle Face Gerald. Damn. I didn't know a poem could do that. I didn't understand that uh, a poem could say something about history. I was 16 years old in prison and I thought that my cohort of of youngins were the first group of people sent to prison as children. I thought like my fears were new. And I read that poem and understood that a poem could tell you something about the world that matters and about the world that threatens. And the question is just who is listening? 16 years hadn't done a good job on his voice. I couldn't believe, (laughs) I really couldn't, that we had been sending children to prison for that long. And again, if you think about the poem, the poem says not what did Gerald deserve. 
It doesn't tell you what he was convicted of. Mm-hmm. It asks, what is permissible for us to do to somebody else? As violent and dangerous as prisons are, for most of this country's history, we thought it was okay to send juveniles to prison with adults. I'm going to talk about as far back as the 1890s. The earliest case you'll find is the 1890s. Black boy gets uh, sentenced to die because um got in a fight and killed a white kid. Goes to the Supreme Court three different times. First time he wins, second time he loses, third time he loses again, and then they execute him. He was a juvenile. I mean, we've been reckoning with this question for the entire history of this country. And that poem is what first revealed it to me. You know, and and, and after I read that, I, I, I one, decided to be a poet, but two, I decided to stop pitying myself so damn much, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to, one, I need to survive, and two, I need to act like life is about more than just me. And I think that's what good poetry does, and, and that's what, like, hearing the stories of others, I mean, it moves you to action in a way. Uh, and I was mostly powerless in prison, but at least I... I I was grateful. I mean, I was I was always good at talking trash. And I mean, you know, I could win the, the trust of people's fists and people loved me. And, and, and it made me feel like really thankful for the things I had given the circumstances. Right. And then when I came home, it, it made me feel like uh, I had a responsibility to recognize how everybody aren't blessed with those same gifts. And so how do you tell the stories to make people maybe move in a way reading that poem made me move? What was the poem you originally were going to read? I was going to read this poem. It's called um, The Idea of Ancestry. And, and, and you know, it was interesting because that poem, I still love that poem. It's about the, you know, the first line is taped to the wall of my cell are 47 pictures, 47 faces. My father, mother, grandmothers, one dead, grandfathers, both dead, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, cousins, first and second, nieces and nephews. They stare across the space at me sprawling on my bunk. I know their dark eyes. They know mine. I know their style. They know mine. I am all of them. They are all of me. They are farmers. I am a thief. I am me. They are thee. And in that poem, you know, I thought what was important about it is uh, when we talk about reform and we talk about prison and what should happen. And sometimes we had a conversation without that moral reckoning. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just believe it should go both ways. And I just wanted to say, like when I was talking earlier, I was just trying to double down on this fact that men inside, women inside, children inside to a larger degree than the public is willing, I think, to recognize this. They're reckoning with what it means. You know, when he's saying, I am a farmer, they are a thief. He is drawing a line in the sand. It's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. And it's hard. And sometimes you fail, you know. And, and I think that when we recognize that folks do that consistently and are willing to do that, I think it should make us even more staunchly ask, what does it mean to put people in conditions and situations that don't that just aren't conducive to that kind of retrospect. Right. I literally never had a, like a therapist in prison. <laughs> I mean, I had, I had one guy talk to me. He was like, he was like, you know, I just had to talk to you because you were at a super maximum security prison and now you moved down to a lower level and we need to do a psych evaluation. And I was like, now? <laughs> and he was like, what do you mean now? I was like, well, I, I mean, I've been in a hole for like, you know, 15 months. I've been in prisons in the mountains where I was locked up 23 hours a day. I'm just trying to figure out why would you talk to me now? <laughs> he was like, well, I just, I just need to know, have you ever considered suicide? I was like, did you listen to what I just said? <laughs> you know, like, like I just described the absolute conditions for, for suicidal ideation. Like this is like when you look up the definition, it says put somebody in cell for 23 hours a day. And he said I was arrogant. <laughs> he said I was arrogant and I was belligerent and I obviously didn't need his help to get out of his office. <laughs> I was like, whatever. <laughs> I, I didn't realize right. that you actually spent part of your sentence in a super max prison. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Why? Um, all kinds of stupid reasons. I, one, um, my, my charge was carjacking. And, you know, and back then, um, youth was an a aggravating factor, not a mitigating factor. Oh. You know, and so the, so the younger you got locked up, you got extra points 
on your security profile, you were like more dangerous. I was 125 pounds, but I was more dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was that. It was my charge. Carjacking is a really violent charge. I had a gun, so it was that. But the main thing is I had a, I caught an um, assault charge on an officer. Um, I wouldn't let a guard close my door. So I just held it up like this and wouldn't let her close my door. And um, and they said I assaulted her for it um, by not letting her close my door. And so that, that gave me a bunch of extra points. And then the Supermax had just opened up, and they just needed bodies there. And so, you know, a bunch of us just got shipped there. Um, the Human Rights Watch used to say people, what people can do. I mean, they protested. And they weren't protesting my case specifically, but uh, Red Onion State Prison, they had shotguns and they were shooting people. People were losing their eyes. It was a lot of violence. And and they protested the Human Rights Watch. And they did a report. And they were arguing it was a lot of people there who were supposed to be the worst of the worst, whatever that means. And it was mm-hmm. like people didn't qualify for it at all. And and so I ended up getting moved. Um, actually, I got sent there. And then like two months later, I got moved. And I was so happy. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was so there. happy to get yeah, man, I was so happy to get out of there. They didn't even have curtains on the showers. I mean, they had the stalls, you know, but uh, it was it was just not a good place. I was happy to I was happy to get out. Did, did it's your all, mother, it's all it's all it's huh? Did your mother come to see you when you were at the at the supermax? Nah, nah not seventeen hours away. Uh, Is and, that how um, far it was? Wow. Yeah, it was. Yeah, she wasn't coming up there. It was like I was a different person by the time she saw me. I mean, I had like my hair had grown and like my shoulders. I had locks because she came to see me at the next prison. I, I did six months in a hole and got sent to Red Onion. And then got let out in population. And I did like two months there. And then I got sent to another. Really, it was a supermax, but they called it a level five instead of a level six. And then I got in a little bit of trouble there. Same thing. Um, incidental contact with an officer. And I got another six months in a hole. And so at this point, I hadn't seen my mom for like 14 months. And so while I was in the hole, she just was like, I'm coming to see you. And her and my grandmother came to see me. And they saw me through the glass. It was a, it was a, I hadn't thought about that in a while. It was a lot. What What was it like the first time your mother saw you in prison? Oh, well, she had seen me a lot before then. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I think people, um, I think people are like, they, they adapt, you know, sometimes. And uh, I will, I will say, the reason why I don't know is because prison is this strange game where when you get sent there, the prisoner is trying to hide everything that they're going through. Even if even if what they're going through is just psychological, mm-hmm. even if what they're going through is just what they see. Even if what they're going through is 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 it's just like you just bitten, you know, you playing space, whatever. And it ain't even that bad, right? But you hide what you're going through from the people you love because because you feel it's your fault that you're there anyway. So the least you could do is 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 just like stand up. And uh and then I think your family, you know, my mom went through a whole bunch of things while I was incarcerated and so I think your family they, they do the same thing you know they they learn to, to wear a mask it's like uh, we wear the mask that grins and lies um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar it's like that's what we we learn to do and so I don't even have an accurate account of it but I know it was horrific and this is why I always say what do we think is permissible to do because I know it's horrific because now that I'm on the outside of it it like troubles me so much to just think about it you know and it's like uh I mean, I think about my friends that's inside, and it troubles me so much to think about how I did eight, and now I've been out for 16, which means that cohort of men I went to prison with when we were all teenagers, the ones who I'm tight with who's still there, it means that they've been there for 24, 25 years. And I can't even grapple wow. in my own head with what the last 15, 16 years of their life looked like. And the thing that I just find so profoundly unsettling, right? Is if we say, are we having a moment of reckoning? I don't even believe that we actually are having a moment in which we could really talk about them publicly. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that it is, it is, uh, I just believe we haven't gotten there yet. And I'm just talking about one state, you know, but it's, it's, it's happening in every state. And, and all of these states are, are like profoundly different, have different levels of violence, have different levels of programming, have different levels of opportunity, but have similar levels of desperation and pain and, and, and sadness. And, and again, like I just, you know, like this is all done in our name. You know, it's not 
it's not like the boogeyman under the stairs. I think it feels better when we can say it's the boogeyman under the stairs, but it's sort of like I know those I know the prosecutor that was trying to send this woman to jail for a year. Like I know him. I remember he 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 missed the court date because he had to get a stint put in his his chest because he was having heart issues. And I was like, damn, I wish you had the same amount of care for her that the doctor's having for you. You know, but I I remember I, I was on, I almost got fired over that case. <laughs> I, I had to, I was just like I think I cursed in chambers. I was I was <laughs> I just I was like I can't believe this. I was like, are you serious? I, I just and that's when I realized I couldn't do the job. I was like, I just can't I just can't I can't I can't be around people who are going to sit here and argue with me about the fact that this woman should do a year in prison because she accidentally killed a dog. I mean, make her work in an animal shelter for a year. I don't care. Like make her make her like. I don't know, train Lassie, you know, but you don't put somebody <laughs> in a cage with children for this. I just, it's like, oh man, I should stop thinking about it. Oh, it's so funny though, right? She was working, she was looking for a job. She just had a pending case. She had no previous criminal convictions. Target, although Target had just filed a suit that said that they couldn't deny people employment, they had just lost a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit that said that they had been denied people employment just because they had um, criminal uh, like they had criminal charges pending mm-hmm. and that, that, that they couldn't do that. So they lost the lawsuit or they settled it. She applied for a job at Target and they sent her a letter and said, we can't get you to charge because of this. And that this was a pending charge that no guilt or innocence had been concluded. And it was just like, you can't have a job because of this. And this is a company that had just lost a class action lawsuit for doing the same thing. And I was like, yo, you think you, you, know, you should try to find your lawyer and file a lawsuit? It's like, I'm just trying to take care of my kids. I don't got time to file a lawsuit, you know? Um, so we should tell those stories. I think if we told those stories, I think it would just animate things so much more clearly for people to just get how perverse um, what we do to people is. Um, I, I really have to say, I, I, I don't want to miss the story of what you, what you said about the experience of holding back and hiding what it was like to be in prison from your family and then learning on the other side of prison that your mother and family had had to do the same. I mean, you want to talk about Shakespearean tragedy. That yeah. is tragic. That yeah. because you Because the assumption is if I really show what this is like, they won't be able to bear it. I mean, your mother might have thought that. I know she was the victim of a crime while you were in prison. And she made a decision yeah. not to tell you because she didn't think you'd be able to bear that, right? And you were doing the same. Yeah, although I hadn't suffered it nearly as, as, as much as she had. You know, like, I, was, I mean, I was good. I, not, I could, prison wasn't fun. You know what I mean? I didn't have a good time. But, but all things considered... Um, you know, I was okay. I just, it was just hard and it was, it was sketchy sometimes, but, and I would never do it again. I think I was, I was, I think, I think maybe my biggest asset was I was young enough to be a damn fool, you know, and to be able to <laughs> adapt to absurdity, you know? Um, but nah, I think, I mean, you, I, my, when my mom told me that, um, after when my mom told me that, um, that, um, that she had been, um, sexually assaulted at, at um, it was like the day I came home and, uh, and we didn't talk about it again for a decade. Wow. You know, and why? And think? we talked about it. Uh, you, you carry just the things we carry, you know, I mean, um, how do you talk about that with somebody? And if I couldn't talk about it to her, you know, I couldn't talk about it to anybody else. Um, and, uh, but it was wild though. Cause like, so somebody was like, uh, Hey, Dwayne, I heard you on this podcast. I think it'd be great to have you. And you, you know, I heard you talking about your mom. It was beautiful. I think it'd be great to have you and your mom on a podcast doing an interview together. I was like, my mom is not interested in this. She does not know what a podcast is. I am certain that she's going to say no, but I'm going to ask her. So I asked her, she's like, yeah, this is, it'd be cool. Let's do it. <laughs> I was like, and she was like, should we prepare? And I was like, uh, I was like, no, nah, I think we'd be okay. She's like, what should we talk about? I was like, oh, whatever you want. You know, they probably just going to ask about prison and we just smile. And, you know, somebody said, ask you something that doesn't make sense. Just answer whatever question you want. Just keep it moving. 
And the lady says, uh, can you describe how it was going to court for, um, for your son? I understand he was facing a life sentence. And my mom says, well, it was, it was really tough because at the same time, I was, I was going to court to get the guy who had raped me prosecuted. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I wasn't prepared. I was like, are we talking? Oh, oh, shit. I was like, I, I guess this is what we're talking about today. And, um, and this is the first time in yeah. a decade that we, and, and what, what that taught me though is that, I mean, is that like, when I think of myself as being really conflicted on these questions of accountability, it is because it wasn't just that my mom couldn't tell me what she was going through. It it wasn't just that my family also couldn't tell me. It was that there was no way to articulate this to the public at all. And that even when I came home, uh, the trauma of it all was still still in her voice. It almost felt like, you know, you know, when you're young and you go to the swimming pool and, and, and you know, the water's cold and you just like forget it and you just jump in. Mm-hmm. It's almost like like things have been bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And, and what hurt me the most was I realized that um I had done all of this work that wasn't really accounting for how my work around criminal justice reform set on her is, you know, like how was I really negotiating the really, really complicated space of saying that somebody shouldn't die in prison, somebody shouldn't spend 30 years in prison, 40 years in prison, 25 years in prison. And at the same time, some things so profoundly hit us that we just live with it forever. And I think that's like the tension that is so hard to, um, I don't know, you know, I mean, that's why we want, all of us want different jobs. And, and what happens is the people who have like legislators, they just make vague notions of what justice looks like and, and draw no hard lines and, and, and know that nobody's watching. So when a prosecutor, t- you know, sentence somebody to 35 years and in the next room, somebody gets nine for the same thing. It's just like, no, oh, well, discretion. And, and, and that's a problem. I want to recommend for for our viewers and our listeners the essay that you wrote for The New York Times about this. Yeah, yeah, it was um, last October, I they called it. right? Yes, I came out October. Yeah, yeah came out came out in October. Mm-hmm. A few weeks came out like two weeks before the election. Right. I worked on it for two years. You know, I worked on it for a wow. long time, knowing it, and it, it morphed a lot because you know the the times were shifting. But the greatest thing that happened probably was that um, Senator Hirsch dropped out the presidential race, and then um, and then she got picked up as VP because because I, I then I felt like I was empowered. Um, at least in my own head, because nobody was ever telling me what to write. But I was empowered in my own head to, and trying to account for what it meant for Senator Hurst to have been a, a prosecutor. I, w- I was able to, like, think seriously about my mom for the first time. And, and you know, and I, I do think we had this notion that, like, politics and political figures is, like, arrogant. He's like, dude. Come on, man. You was writing about the vice president and you made it a piece about your mama and your homeboys in prison. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like a politician, baby. I stay on message, you know, like, right. but, but it was but it, it really was, though, because it made me think that um, the, the more often we could collapse the distance between the decisions of policymakers and the lives of people on the ground. I think mm-hmm. the better decisions we may get. And in that piece, that's all I was trying to do is like collapse that collapse that distance it takes seriously both how my mom felt about everything, but also how I feel about dudes in prison who I love, who I who I deeply feel should have should have been released long ago. And some of them, you know, they committed murders. And it's it is like it is a it is it is a hard thing to grapple with. That we we just kick the can on way too often, you know. Um, I wanna ask you to read a poem from Felon and then we're going to talk about the Million Book Project, which is really, I'm excited to hear about what's what's the latest on it. Cool. Yeah, I am excited, too. And uh, I'm going to go back to this poem that I was going to read. I'll just read this. November 5th, 1980. I have called in my wasted youth the concrete slabs of prison home, awakened to God's keeping tabs on my breath. Bartered with every kind of madness, the state's mandatory minimums, and my own callous, 
I've never called the man father. And while sleep twice wrecked cars, drank whiskey straight, nothing suffices. I fell in love with sons I wouldn't give my name. Once swam at midnight in the Atlantic's violence. Under the water, rattling broke the silence. I cussed men with fists like hand bones and got beaten to dust. Buried memories in my gut that would fill a book. I've carried pistols, but I've never held a bullet. There is frightful little left for me to hold in fear. Definitely not the debt that threatens to hollow me. I've abhorred transparency, confessed to so-and-so, but what of it matters? In this life, so much is troubled, and a few things that didn't never failed to baffle you're listening to my conversation with poet and lawyer Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's the author of a number of books, including Felon, Poems, and a memoir titled A Question of Freedom, A Memoir of Learning, Survival, and Coming of Age in Prison. Let's talk about the Million Book Project, uh, funded by the Mellon Foundation. And I know you're working with your friend Elizabeth Alexander on this. Yes. Um, uh, it isn't only about getting books into prisons. It's also about giving people who are incarcerated experiences with authors. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. So definitely, I think that I will argue that uh, what we believe is um, freedom begins with a book, and 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 we take that seriously. And if you take that seriously, you ask, well, what does that mean? And it means that first, you got to be able to touch a book hold a book and have books in your presence. I see I see your bookshelf behind you. I see a bookshelf behind you. It's a cool book on the top of the shelf. <laughs> and uh and my bookshelf is and my bookshelf is to the right of me. And my sons have bookshelves. And uh, it struck me one day, I did eight and a half years in prison. You go to the library, but sometimes you got a job that doesn't allow you to go to the library. Sometimes you just shook. You're afraid you don't want to deal with dealing with the guards or you don't want to deal with dealing with the other prisoners. And so you just opt out of going to the library and try to stay to yourself. What would it mean um, if you had like my first real job was the pod librarian and they gave me like 20, 30, 40 books and I would like figure out what people wanted to read and I would give it to them and they would come to me. And I was it was like a source of like identity to I know guess. who likes what. I mean, it was it was real, you know, and, uh, and but but that was one of the few times when the books were close to us and even the books being close to us. It was just in a in a, in a lock in a gray box. What would it mean to put bookshelves in housing units to create a kind of um, atmosphere that was more than just the dank, dark, brutal structures of prisons. So that's one aspect is to just create this freedom library and put it in housing units and like saturate prisons where each housing unit has these 500 books that sp spans from like Plato to Faulkner to John Edgar Wyman to Gwendolyn Brooks to Lucille Clifton. And it also has the contemporary books that will never end up in prison because the print runs end up being just a thousand. The National Book Award winners from the last five years, none of those books are probably in prisons. The Booker Prize winners, none of them are in prison. The books that become movies, not in prisons. The Blind Side, not in prisons. You could go on and on and on down the list. And so the idea is to bring those books in, but also to bring the authors and the writers in. To, to, to you know, Already we have, a, we have maybe 13 that have signed up, and we have dozens that have committed to doing it that wow. I just said, well, we need to wait to get things in place. And these are writers. It's like, I will go into a prison in my community because one of the reasons why we can do what we do to men and women and children in prison is because nobody sees it and nobody pays them attention. But I should say prisons often frequently have high rates of alcoholism and suicide among the guards. That's also like a forgotten population. They struggle as well. One of the jokes we used to tell guards who were messing with us is like, dude, you got life too. You just doing yours 13 hours at a time. Ugh. You come in here, they take your cell phone, they take your purse. Look at how you dressed. Your uniform barely looks better than mine, you know, and they strip your dignity just like they strip mine. Now, maybe that's not 100 percent true, but it is true that that the prison experience works in both directions. And so we're also putting freedom libraries in the space of the guards, because if we truly believe stories matter, Everybody needs to have access to those stories. And when, the, when I've gone into prisons, I'm never just talking to the prisoners. I'm talking to everybody. You know, I, I, and, if, and anybody could ask me a question. 
You know, I show up there just like I show up at a university. And so we got a cohort of folks that's, that's doing this. Um, one amazing partnership that we have actually is with an organization called Literature to Life. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things people think is like, um, yeah, I can't read a book. I can't read Richard Rice, Black Boy. I got a fourth grade read. I'm on a fourth grade reading level. And I'm like, well, that's not true. I mean, you might have to struggle through it, but you could read it. And so what Literature to Life does is they take a, 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 a work like Black Boy and then they turn it into a solo show, all with Richard Wright's words. And so we'll we'll have the um, actor, this cat Tarantino, who performs Black Boy. We'll have him come into the prison, perform Black Boy, and everybody will get it. People will see the reflection of their lives in that work. And then we'll drop 100 copies of Black Boy in there to give away to folks so that they can take it back to their housing unit and read. And then we'll have a Freedom Library there. And the idea is to expansively, as expansively as possible, expose people to the different ways that literature operates. Whether you're talking about poets, whether you talk about fiction writers, whether you talk about memoirists, or whether you talk about actors who perform their pieces and bring this work to life, the, the idea really... It's to say that it's a choice always. I mean, I think prison is a brutal place, but I don't want to act like prison is just a brutal place. A man I didn't know heard me ask for a book and slid me to Black Poets because he thought it might matter to me. Another cat that I just met gave me this book, Every Shat I Ain't Sleep, because he was like, I think Shahid would dig this book. He don't know why he thought I would like it. He might have just not liked it himself, but he was like, this young cat seems to like reading. I'm going to give him this thing that I think he might like. And it profoundly changed my life. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how horrible prison is, and I don't want to act as if it's not. But I think to the extent that people have to live there, it is a duty, a duty to find ways to um, invest in those minds and to find ways to invest in the notion that what we believe matters out here matters out there. I've been in so many colleges. I've never been in a college that didn't have a reading series. Mm-hmm. I've never been in a college that didn't bring guest speakers in. I've been in a lot of prisons too. Served time in at least seven. None of them had guest speakers. And I think that's another reason why um, we neglect those spaces. That's more evidence of how we neglect those spaces. And so trying to work to create a, a project that is it's a mission. It says freedom begins with a book and and we can actually make that a reality. I mean, my freedom, I mean, I read law books in prison and I represented and got three friends out of prison this year. The same dude that I was studying law in the cell when he watched me studying law to become, to just take this paralegal course just because I was trying to find a, a better way to bid. That same man who I was working with who had a life sentence I went to the parole board and represented him and got him out of prison. And so, I, you know, I I deeply believe that freedom begins with a book. And I think it's possible to to transform how people interact with literature, how people think about literature. And more importantly, to see them and allow them to see us so that we can actually say, yeah, is this permissible? You know, is this is this okay?" And I think we will say no. And and, and maybe we will demand um, real and legitimate change you know, after that. Dwayne, I really thank you for the time. You are such a busy, busy man with a lot of things to do. And I'm honored you spent an hour with me. Thank you.